2: and American generals choose their own, ensuring diversity of thought never interferes with American warmongering.
0: How can we stand by and do nothing while our military kills and destroys lives the world over, while telling Americans that all this death and destruction protects them from terrorists when nothing could be more false?
2: Fortress on a Hill aims to change that. Avner Gavaryu, welcome to Fortress on a Hill. Thank you for being with us today.
1: Yeah, thank you for, for having me. It's my pleasure.
2: It's not often that uh, we get to invite a fellow anti-war veteran from another country on the podcast. I think this is a first for us, so thank you for fulfilling that for us.
1: Yeah, looking forward for our, to our conversation and uh, sort of uh, um, you know, seeing where uh, we can you know, learn from each other and learn from our movements.
2: Sounds good sounds good, Avner, can you give us some background on your service in the Israeli defense force please
1: yeah sure so i'm uh I'm an Israeli born and raised uh my uh my slight American accent is from my mom who grew up in upstate New York um, but she moved here uh met my dad. Um, and we were basically raised in a city called uh, the Chovot, which is uh, in the center, more or less of Israel. I grew up in a uh, religious family, what we call in the Israeli society, the religious, national community. Um, so this is a community that's both religious but also uh, serves in the army. Um, and it was very clear to me that I'll join the army. Uh, my dad, served as a paratrooper, my older brother served as a combat soldier, I named after a soldier who was killed in the 1973 war. Um, so I myself joined um, in November 2004. Um, in Israel, there's a draft, so I was, uh, um, I was, uh, I basically didn't have a lot of uh, wiggle room there, I had to join, but I did volunteer to the paratroopers. Um, so I started my service in the paratroopers and um, I uh, chose to not only serve in the paratroopers, but also do a few more uh, physical exams, and I, uh, I, which I passed. So I started my service um, in what could be described as sort of the special ops unit of the paratrooper brigade. Um, our, our unit specifically was an anti tank unit, um, and we spent a lot of time in our almost year of training uh, preparing ourselves to sort of use this anti tank weaponry. But um, uh, we didn't fight tanks in any time during my three years. What we actually did, um, and this is what the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, um, are actually doing. Um, with a big part of um, um, the army's might, um, I was basically part of maintaining the military occupation in the West Bank, uh, what, the, what the army called Ha'imut uh, HaMugbal, which translates into the limited confrontation, which is basically what the army calls, the occupation, what I would call uh, Israel's military dictatorship over Palestinians. Um, So, I mean, we can go into sort of the history and the background if you'd like, but uh, I think uh, um, summarizing this pretty quickly, since 1967, Israel has been occupying uh, with military might um, massive uh, areas, um, which Israel has never annexed and the international community does not see as an integral part of Israel, and that's where the occupation uh, takes place. Um, so uh, the West Bank is where I serve, and mostly around Nablus and Jenin. Um, and towards the end of my service, after I uh, went to a commander's course, I became a sergeant of a snipers team. And a big part of what I did as as a, a soldier, generally, and as a soldier who was who was you know um, leading together with my officer this this team, um, was a mission that we called. Straw Widows, um, which uh, came to define a big part of my military service. Um, and um, basically, the idea behind a straw widow is um, taking a private Palestinian house and using that house as a military uh, post. Um, and I actually found myself um, spending uh, many hours, many nights, uh barging into Palestinian homes um and uh using their window, their living room, the kitchen window, um, and they're basically their house as a military post while the entire family was locked in a room. Um and I think those moments, those what came to become pretty mundane routine moments were were also I would say a big part um in my process in and wanting to speak out and talking about what's actually happening in the occupied territories.
2: Well, thank uh, thank you, thank you uh, for that background. Um, yeah, I, I listened to a little bit of a couple interviews of yours and and just describing that, um, it's uh, I'm, I'm, it's it's just just shocking to uh, it's shocking to hear about.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that uh, for, for me, for me, the, those ho- home invasions were very impactful. But but I think what what is sometimes sort of lost in, in the distance of what's happening on the ground is, um, you know, we've been we Israel. And when I say we, I, I, I definitely refer to Israel because, you know, I'm Israeli. I see myself as an Israeli patriot. Uh, what what my military is doing and what's being done there is being done in my name definitely with my tax money um but what Israel and what we what we're maintaining in the occupied territories is uh really sort of this um um this constant reality that's been going on with you know different uh, uh levels of extreme throughout the 50 to 53 years but i think there's something which is uh, more, getting more and more visible. And that is that, that uh, we're, we're moving away from the temporariness of the occupation. And I think that this understanding that we're, we're not in, in sort of a war-like reality where you have, uh, at least in, in theory, an end. Uh, here we're talking about a reality where the whole system in place is to make sure we continue the control. Um, So, you know, home invasions is really a tip of the iceberg. It's, you know, even arrests or uh, checkpoints, you know, many times you'll see these visuals coming out of the territories of, you know, Palestinians, you know, standing in checkpoints or home invasions. Even that's the tip of the iceberg. I think the, the most important element of what's happening on the ground is, this idea of control, which is, in fact, uh, uh, um, uh, a reality that affects the, the, uh, the most basic um, way of life for each and every Palestinian living living under our rule. It doesn't matter, you know, if you live in a small community near a settlement or if you live inside a big Palestinian city, you know, bigger like Ramallah, Elbirah, Bethlehem, Hebron and so on you will be affected by this military control that will be translated not only to soldiers standing in checkpoints, but also to an entire system that regulates um, movements for Palestinians in and out of the territories, inside the territories in specific areas, uh, access to their own agricultural land, and so on and so forth, and this is all being maintained uh, by soldiers. Some of them are soldiers with guns, helmets, barging into homes. But some of them, you know, like like what I did. But some of them are soldiers sitting behind desks who are basically, um, you know, maintaining this uh, this reality of uh, of control.
0: You know, uh, and this is Danny here. I think probably Henry and I both have probably not to the extent, you know, because. You know, in scale, America's war is about, America's wars plural, and occupations are about two decades old. Of course, occupation of the West Bank is, what, now 53 years old. But, you know, in Iraq in particular, I mean, taking over homes, apartments, and setting up what we called observation posts or, you know, sort of uh, hunter-kill teams was, was a big part of, of what we did as well. But, and, and so the, it just really resonates when you say it. And, and to think that, that, that Israel has been doing that or the IDF has been doing that for 53 years, sometimes a mile from the border, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? Just, just over the border from Israel is striking. But what I want to ask is, is this, you know, your organization, which, you know, I've followed for uh, a number of years and think is just incredibly important, no matter how hard they try to silence you, right? And so breaking the silence is this really great term because, you know, not only is there an attempt to silence anti-war vets here in the United States, but probably even more so in Israel to a certain extent, uh, but one of the things about occupation, long-term occupations, and I and I'm sure you agree with this, is that the silence about it, right, the, the the refusing to speak about it as a society, is part of what maintains it. And so, what I'm interested in is, of course, we could talk on broader terms, and it would probably my question would take up the rest of the pod. So we could talk about what happens to a society. Uh, after 53 years of military occupation of a neighbor. But I'm interested in the military, you know. Um, Sure, you know, you've been in the military in a more recent period, but you said you were named after a soldier killed in 1973, I believe. Um, You have a family background, most people in Israel do. What, in your opinion, has been the effect on the IDF, the effect on the military institution and culture from 53 years of sort of prolonged and normalized occupation? What has that done? to the military establishment
1: yeah you know i think i think that um, that that's an excellent question um and i think that there have been you know there there there's there's you know different ways different ways to to sort of look look at this effect there's actually uh an interesting uh, movie that i would recommend called uh, the gatekeepers um where when it was when it was out, was you know all the former heads of uh, Israel, Israeli, um, what we call um, the Shabak, the basically the Israeli equivalent to the FBI, um, going on record uh, into this documentary and talking about basically the occupation. They don't, they don't all agree, but I, I think there is a very powerful voice there. Um, it talks about, um, um, you know, the, the moral price, uh, which is paid. And I think, you know, brought forward by former heads of the Secret Service who are very involved in maintaining the occupation, this was al- will also come a- out, you know, uh, in some interviews with former heads of, uh, the IDF, you know, chief of staff and their deputies. But I think the, one of the interesting things that comes out in, you know, from our work in breaking the silence, is really uh, you know how how deep um, this uh, um, this reality has affected um, um, the way the army itself operates. You know, there's sort of a cliche in Israeli society, um, um, sort of turned into a cliche, talking about um, sort of a slogan: "Occupation corrupt." Um, and you know, many people will say, well, there isn't even an occupation and one will, others will, will, will say, well, it doesn't corrupt or ignore it. But this sort of slogan has somehow sort of become a cliche, but I think it's a very, it's important because it, it doesn't say that occupation is inherently corrupt. Um, you know, theoretically, if, if the military occupation would have been a short period of time, theoretically maybe it could have ended, right? And then, you know, there's nothing necessarily fundamentally wrong with that concept. International law also recognizes it as a, as a binding concept. The problem is when military occupation becomes the norm. And then what you're faced with is with a reality where a military is not equipped to deal with. Um, and I think there's so many different examples of this, of how this um, this corruption, which has been going on for, for many years now, um, doesn't only uh, disregard Palestinian suffering, doesn't only um, disregard uh, and sort of uh, whitewash uh, deaths of Palestinians and sort of giving very minimized sentences to soldiers and, and so on. But there's also another element, which I think is very interesting and dangerous and unique, at least in in, in you know in recent years, to the Israeli occupation, which are the Israeli settlers, right? So alongside millions of Palestinians living under our control, you also have today, between 350,000 to half a million, depends, you know, if we count East Jerusalem, which was annexed or not, but we're talking about thousands of Israeli citizens living in a militarized area um so i would say i would say the best example is you know uh when you're standing inside the west bank inside the occupied territories what many israelis will call judah and samaria um you're standing in an area where the law is the military rule the military occupier but but alongside with the vast majority of the people living there under the military occupation, you also have Israeli citizens there that are protected, right? So you can sort of imagine them living there, surrounded with this imaginary bubble. This bubble allows them, these Israeli citizens, to live in an area which is occupied and controlled by the military, but basically maintain their rights as citizens. And this creates uh, absurdities, right? where you have two separate two parallel systems in one geographical area and you don't have the potential for equality right in israel proper there are minority groups right that are fighting for their rights and so on but they theoretically have the potential for equality right they can you know if they're they can fight for citizenship and if they can be citizens they could fight for political representation and so on in the occupied territories that's that's from the get-go. That's not the case. So you have a system which is built um, from the root of it to be unequal, um, and and this creates a system which, which I think, and this is probably I would say the most dramatic uh, um, effect of uh, 53 years of military occupation on the military is basically the military has. Become um, um, sort of um, um, a body that, in many, many cases, is there to um, maintain a sense of security for the settlers, which basically translates into the soldier's job is to uh, allow the settlement project to expand. Um, and, this, and this means, um, uh, again, a, a system where you have, you know, almost a routinely reality of settler violence, which soldiers on the ground don't have the power to stop because they're soldiers. They can't stop, they can't stop the citizens. That's only the job of Israeli policemen. Um, and this reality, just as an example, will cause more and more Palestinians to lose their land. Right. So the military, the Israeli defense force basically, um, um, ha- has become in that sense subordinate to what we sometimes refer to as the high command, right? Where the settler movement has political power that allows this reality of, of, of corruption to, um, um, to be, um, um, to be entrenched.
0: You know, uh, what a what a great description because you dug into some real taboos that I'm sure in Israeli society, and and frankly, in a scary way, even in American society, these are things we don't talk about, right? You're not allowed to talk about the occupation, or you're specifically not allowed to talk about uh, the settlers and the settler violence. But am I hearing, you know, and this doesn't require a long answer, am I hearing that to an extent, the position, and and the role of the IDF at this point has become to protect and enable settlements that are, at, at least under international law, illegal. I mean, it, it seems like, and, and I don't know what your position is on that, but, or or at the very least an obstacle to peace. And so you've got the IDF, which is lauded in Israeli society, I think, right, to some extent similar to our military. Protecting and enabling uh, an illegal venture—is is that, to some extent, what I'm hearing?
1: Yeah. No. I mean, I, I would—I would say, you know, it's not—it's not—it's really even, regardless of what I think to be true, it's—you uh, know—we'll I'll, I'll take it that, you know, we'll sort of uh, show the absurdity even more, right? So, under international law, you know, um, and according to the Geneva Convention, you know, uh, all settlements are illegal, and that has been sort of uh consensus in the vast majority of the international community. It was a position of the U.S. till the last, you know, till the current Trump administration, or at least, you know, um, you know, in their terms, unhelpful and so on and so forth. Um, but uh, uh, under Israeli law, there are at least between 150 and 15, 130 settlements that are uh, what what many refer to as outposts, which are. Were basically unauthorized settlement under Israeli law, right? So these are these are these are criminal enterprises uh, in the eyes of the Israeli state. Let's put aside international community. Now the Israeli military will protect these illegal, unauthorized outposts, right? And almost every settlement, almost every settlement that respects itself, has an illegal outpost. Now, in many cases, and we actually have on our website uh, a booklet that we call the High Command uh, that has a little bit of an intro and, and a lot of testimonies regarding this relationship between settlers and soldiers. Where one of the one of the reoccurring uh, testimonies that we have, I I gave a testimony about this as well, is that when you come to guard a settlement or an outpost, you have Guarding uh the settlement alongside with the soldiers uh security guards who are ideal, ideological settlers living there and they're they are what 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 we call um, uh special uh security officers special security coordinators, and in many cases these settlers who uh walk around with a gun who are basically in charge of an internal security for the settlement and are paid by the Ministry of Defense, but are supposed to be subordinate to the military. They will be the ones giving the soldiers orders, right? And this is a this is a reoccurring thing, well documented uh, over and over again, where you have, in the best case scenario, uh, this uh, lack of clarity in you know who is in charge. But in many cases, or the that's not the worst case scenario. but In many cases, the reality is young soldiers right imagine yourselves you know as you're you know just starting your tour you don't know a lot of what's happening on the ground so there's a young soldiers sometimes still in their training sent to these you know different settlements sometimes just for like 10 days this is their first time in the region could be the first time for their officer as well they will then get orders from the local settlers um and i think the absurdity comes up in many many cases uh, again well documented by us but by other um anti-occupation human rights organizations on the ground you know we give we bring the perspective of um you know not the victims but the victimizers right we're giving the testimonies of the soldiers many organizations do more of the classic human rights work bringing testimonies of uh palestinians right so Yesh and 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 many other amazing organizations doing this work have put forward a massive body of information that proves that the settler violence, which is basically given a green light because there's, you know, internalized lack of law enforcement, is pushing Palestinians off their own land. And what you basically see is this process of uh, settler violence combined with, um, um a military presence together with draconian laws preventing Palestinians from farming their land or building on their land allow in a process that we' we're, we're very much in the expansion of the settlements sometimes illegally many times illegally on the expense of Palestinian land which basically minimizes the areas where Palestinians are living so you have sort of like a plus and minus on the battery, right? Sort of the settlements are expanding and the minus are the Palestinian community where Palestinians are being pushed, shoved into more confined areas um, uh, closer to the big city. So losing massive swabs of, of, of land. Um, and, and, and I think that, you know, this, what I describe to you now has basic, basically been the case for the vast majority of the past uh, 50 years. But what we see now more recently in the past five years, um, you know, under the, the last government, um, led by Netanyahu with a lot of power of the settlement movement, we see bills, uh, or, or attempts of bills to be being passed in Israeli parliament that will in, in effect legalize many of these illegal outposts, right? So you basically have this process of um um vast uh building that was seen illegal by the state of israel which is now retroactively uh being
2: legalized so in 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 other words no matter what section of the israeli government is involved whether it's people that from the settlers to the soldiers to parliament to citizens back home there are all systems are saying support the occupation or, and, and legalize it, if at all possible.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think this is, this, and this is sort of going a little bit more political, but I think, you know, very relevant to this you know, topic. Uh, but, but, you know, I think that for many, many years, um, you know, the state of Israel has been around since 1948. Uh, I personally believe in Israel's right, or Jews' right to self-determination. And, you know, I I think that um, uh, the the state of Israel is a a reality. Um, I won't get into this, but I just don't believe that our right to self-determination should come on the back of another people's right to self-determination. But uh, Israel is a state, and, and is a state with recognized borders, you know, from the international community. In 1967, with the, with occupation, you basically uh, we start seeing this process where Israel, you know, between the river and the sea, it's one state controlling all this territory, um, and this uh, this one state with, that controls all this territory is, in effect, maintaining two separate regimes, right? A, a, a democracy or a flawed democracy in Israel proper, right? But but there's still that potential for democracy, right? I'm talking from you from within Israel proper in the center of israel um you know and another regime which is a military controlled area a military dictatorship these two regimes have been living side by side for many years and this has been the case not only now but but for many many years two these two separate regimes what we see happening over the past decade and definitely in the past couple years and you know trump here has helped amazingly to push this process forward Uh, They couldn't have done this without the support of Trump and the Trump sham and the deal, you know, the slap of the century and, you know, whatever you want to call these, you know, these different names for this plan. Um, uh, Basically, a movement, which has always been in the fringe of the Israeli society, has now gained much more power and much more political power. And we're basically moving from this reality of one state with two regimes to a one state with one regime, right? So so, uh, many would argue that elements in the occupied territory itself resemble apartheid, right? Segregation, bantustans, and so on and so forth. Um, And I think that's something to be dealt with, um, and definitely an argument that should be dealt with and put on the table. But the process that we're talking about, um, if we're going to be moving forward with annexation of the territories, and this is what the Trump plan is, will allow. This is what the Israeli current government, and we'll see what will be our next government. But even Netanyahu's political opposition, at least on the face of things, has legitimized annexation. We're basically talking about um, um, erasing this distinction between the two separate regimes and just going full-scale apartheid. And this is a very, very dramatic uh, shift where we see this legitimacy for annexation almost across the political spectrum. Um, and this is why this last election that just ended very recently was very, very important and it was actually unconclusive. But on the issue of annexation, there is a majority, or at least on the face of it, a majority of legitimacy to do that. Um, and as as an Israeli who believes in the importance of separating Israel you know the legitimate Israel with defined borders, right what I would maybe call kosher Israel to non kosher Israel right the legitimate state versus uh non legitimate reality uh, this process as we're moving towards not only the legitimacy of the settlement but the legitimacy of permanent control over Palestinians in confined areas um, and annexation without giving Palestinians the right to vote. Um, And I think that this is really, um, and I say this, you know, with a lot of caution, but this is basically, um, uh, you know, moving us into a regime that uh you know that we thought that ended with the, the the end of apartheid in South Africa um and there was a rally against this 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 plan there was a rally against this in tel aviv where you know you know thousands of israelis went to the street protesting it and we 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 put together a sign um which we walked around with this par- with in this parade and um in this in this march and the sign said um Um, uh, don't make apartheid great again. Uh, And I think that basically the involvement of the U.S. in the the dreams of the far right, right, this, this dangerous alliance between, you know, the messianic right and Israel believing in the greater state of Israel and the permanent control to the evangelical base of Trump um, has brought us to a very, very dangerous spot.
0: Well, the use of the word apartheid, I personally think is appropriate, but I understand that the caution and, you know, this is just one of those words that is anathema, and I'm sure that that's the case in Israel. But you're you're describing a system that is. Almost textbook apartheid, and one of the things that one of the things that struck me, um, and I think you might find this interesting, very briefly, is that I was on a brief uh, speaking tour in LA um, for my uh, next book on on descent, especially veteran descent, and just you know why it's important. And so I was at a fundraiser for my publisher in a Santa Monica backyard, right? So this, if you, um, you may have been LA, it's just rich people, right? Uh, rich white liberals. <laughs> Rich white liberals in quotes. And, um, and they were mostly nice people and were like-minded on probably 90% of everything. But one of the things that struck me was a conversation that I got sort of dragged into um, by uh, a Jewish American uh, with dual citizenship in Israel or who has lived in Israel, son is in the army, um, served under Benny Gantz at one time, uh, who is a blue and white party, right? Former general uh, candidate for prime minister, and uh, and I got a lecture, and then some other Jewish Americans. There were lots of them, right? There there were many uh, who were like minded in that area, and one of the things that struck me was that these folks who they, they hate Trump so much, right? They they loathe Trump. It almost defines their political identity in 2020. Uh, They're all about identity politics, right? They're notionally in favor of the welfare state. But I got a lecture and and I almost couldn't fight back uh, because I was exhausted by it about Israel security and how Iran is this great evil. And it was great that we assassinated Qasem Soleimani. I mean, in fact, this gentleman and, and everyone agreed except for me, argue that Iran is really behind the protests in Gaza, completely ignoring the the genuine grievances of the people. And so this was striking. But what I wanted to ask you is, you know, in this latest, really series of elections, the once somewhat powerful, very powerful labor party in Israel, the traditional left, right? Or the traditional uh, establishment left has become a marginal party. Um, And we have a situation where the Jewish American liberals in the United States, they all loved Benny Gantz. And and, and he's what I call a polite emperor, and I'm interested to know what you think about that term. But, and he's also a general, which is similar to the United States, where we have more and more generals going into politics. But why the failure of labor? And is Gantz, so so it's two questions, you know, why the failure of labor, in your opinion, or the weakness of labor currently, and is Benny Gantz truly a superior option to Netanyahu? Uh, does he represent real change, and what does he represent? And I know that's a complicated, serious questions, but I think most Americans don't know anything about this, and, I, and I, I have a feeling that you've got some interesting insight.
1: Yeah. So I mean, um, you, you, you said you said a bunch of you said a bunch of stuff there, which I think. Um, Um, you know, I, I, I wish I could, you know, um, go back to each and every point, but, but I think that, you know, generally speaking, I, I agree that there is an issue of what some people sometimes call PEPs, right? Progressive except Palestine or progressive except Palestinians. Uh, and this is definitely true, uh, when it comes to, you know, many liberals around the world and definitely true in the Israeli. Israeli society, people that are, you know, progressive on many issues, um, you know, LGBTQ rights and, uh, you know, church and state and um, um, climate change and so on and so forth. When it comes to this issue, uh, you see something, some, something shift. Um, I, I would, uh, you know, just, just to sort of put the previous conversation, you know, behind us and then move forward, I, I would be, I, I, I'm very, very cautious of you know uh, when we talk about Israel you know moving into apartheid um but 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 this reality where uh for for so many years the call of the of liberal Zionists of the of the progressive uh Zionist camp in Israel was you know there's the, we still have the potential to to end military control uh, becomes much more challenging when state gap in the nexus. And this is, and this is, you know, sort of trying to to talk about Gantz and Netanyahu and the difference. You know, I I would argue this. You know, Israel doesn't have and never really had um, uh, a real right and left, right, especially when it comes to you know the core issue of right, right and left is in many in many countries where it comes to sort of political issues, you can find people who are hardcore capitalists in what is seen left leaning parties, and you can find people who are real socialists um when it comes, you know, but you know, are are seen in right wing parties and so on and so forth. Uh there is one thing that I would say should be defining Uh, politics in Israel, and that is your approach to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the Israeli occupation. And that's where, uh, uh, actually, Netanyahu and Gantz are closer than what we think. Uh, And still, I think Gantz is better than Netanyahu, but first I'll explain why they're actually closer. So I would say we have three defined political camps in Israel, Um, three and a half. The biggest political camp in Israel, the biggest, uh, the strongest voice in Israel has been what I would call the control camp, right? This camp that, that, that uh, believes that between the river and the sea, there's only space for one country, and that's Israel. Uh, and, and you can find people supporting this idea uh, in Gantt's party. Right, which is sort of right of center, in people in Likud, in Netanyahu's party, who still believe there should be this control. They don't necessarily want to annex, even though this is a growing phenomenon in Netanyahu's party, um, but also in people in the Labour Party. right? For many, many years, the plan of Labour was basically uh, a form of, of control, maybe even permanent control um this was once challenged in oslo right in the 90s to the right of this political camp you have the largest growing political camp in israel which is the annexation camp basically a political camp that believes that we should annex the territories not enough to maintain our control we have to annex the territories. basically that's the apartheid camp right this camp has been growing. It's not the biggest yet, maybe, but maybe today it is. Right? Maybe today at this point, with Gantz and definitely Netanyahu supporting uh, annexation, this camp has become probably the, one of the biggest or not the biggest camps in Israel. So these are the two strong political camps. Right? Uh, you have Lieberman, who's a camp on his own. We won't get into that. That's sort of the half, three and a half. And to the left, is what I would call the equality camp, right? This today is the smallest political camp in Israel. Within labor, there was always a shift, a, a fight. There was always people that were part of the control camp or people that part of the equality camp. Once in our history of the state, in the mid-90s, did the, the equality camp manage to pull the control camp. That was the Oslo process, which was very flawed and many things to say about that. But it was for the first time that this idea of the equality camp of at least theoretically ending military control was literally on the table. Um, When we talk about Netanyahu and Gantz, what we're actually seeing is the center-right fighting with the far-right. And the process that happened to the center-left, to the Labour Party, was that they were constantly watering down their message and sort of... Uh, toning down who they are in order to, what they thought would give them more votes, is that they basically morphed, they're basically their voters morphed into Benny Gantz, right? Into, their, into blue and white. It's the same electorate. Go back to 2015 and go back to 2020, the same amount of people voted to the center-right, center-left block, right? The numbers haven't changed. It's all in the same numbers. But What happens, the process that we've been seeing with the Labour Party, I think is an amazing process that's been happening in many places around the world, sort of the center left feeling that we have to go more to the center, that they basically become sort of right of center instead of left of center. And this uh, right of center doesn't manage to win the election. And then what you actually have is a process that instead of having a uh, center-left opposition versus a right-wing government, you have a center-right opposition that opposes a right-wing government, right? So the whole conversation, the whole conversation, is shifted to the right, and you see this with these reoccurring elections. What this does to the ideological center-left, it, it demolishes it. So why do I still think it's it's better that Gant beats Bibi? Because in the end of the day. When you think of uh, these, two, these two politicians, in many issues they be see eye to eye. I don't think anything will dramatically change an occupation front under Gantz, but I do think that there are two things that are important. One is uh, uh, Netanyahu at this, at this spot, at this moment, actually needs to destroy rule of law in Israel to keep himself out of prison. That's something Gantz won't do, but another thing which is important is in order to allow any sort of change, in order to allow any sort of movement within the different parties, you you know Netanyahu has to move because he is he he's sort this he everyone is orbiting around him, um, and and this is this this has created a very very problematic, to say the least. Uh, political system pull in together the allegations or the indictments against Netanyahu. You're basically you basically understand why uh, it's so important for him to move in order for there to be some sort of uh, revival and new energy. Hopefully, I can hope for uh, the left and the center.
2: The guys and I love doing the podcast. Being able to share our experiences in the military with allies and supporters means the world to us. But we can't do all the work. We need you to share an episode of ours with somebody, anyone, whom you think might be affected by it. Maybe a young person looking to join the military or parents advocating for one. uh, Conscientious citizens who care about the violence the U.S. wages in their name advocates for women and people of color who understand the harsh environment the military can create for minorities and also inflicts on minorities across the globe and anyone else you think it might affect please take a minute and share this with them now our podcast is supported in a few different ways first there's patreon where we're blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters helping the guys and i pay for some of the podcast's expenses those who contribute $10 a month or more will be mentioned here as an honorary producer, helping keep you, our listeners, stocked with new episodes. But you don't have to contribute $10 a month to help us. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us keep going, paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing old and new episodes, promoting and expanding the podcast, and other crap I can't think of right now. So let's bring out these honorary producers, and they are Will Ends, Gage Counts, Fahim Shirazi, Henry Zamoda, James O'Barr, Adam Bellows, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, Thomas Benson, and the Status Quo Podcast. Your contributions are wonderfully helpful to us. Thank you very much. However, if Patreon isn't your style, you can contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me Forward slash fortress on a hill. Or please check out our store on Spreadshirt. The great Bill Kropinski did an awesome job designing our first shirt, which you can find at shop.spreadshirt.com forward slash fortress on a hill. Check for promo codes before you order. And now let's get back to the podcast.
0: As you might be able to uh, tell, I know just enough about Israeli politics and history to be dangerous, right? Um, I'm, I'm not an expert, but this is one of my side interests. And um, I think what you laid out is is, is really astute, uh, a good insider's account. It, it digs into some nuance that's completely lost here in the United States in our coverage of the Israeli election. I mean, in the United States, it seems that the only – discussion the only discussion of israeli politics is is netanyahu trump right that's the question and so if there's any criticism of netanyahu it's very rarely on his policies within the west bank or his policies uh towards the palestinians and and rather it's on his corruption right it's on his uh indictments and, and and his connection to Trump, because in the United States, liberalism, right, uh, to the extent that it exists, is really an anti-Trump uh, ideology at this point, which I think is highly dangerous. And I, I think it's fascinating to see or to hear the, the genuine gradations within Israeli politics and the, and the rightward shift. And I think it's important on a podcast like this, because we're, most of our listeners are American to understand that this isn't just we're not just doing some sort of ethnic study or some history of another country for the sake of it i mean there are there are genuine and we can't over over overemphasize them because that would be wrong but there are some genuine connections i mean as israel has moved right as as right-wing ideology has become uh more norm in the center in israel i mean the same thing has been happening in the united states over the course of a number of years if not decades and so i think this is a Really interesting point, and I'm glad that you dug into it. And I know that I asked yeah, I mean, a lot of questions, but it's it's really important. And
1: that, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think this is – this, and this is sort of going a little bit more political, but I think, you know, very relevant to this you know, topic. Uh, but, but, you know, I think that for many, many years, um, you know, the state of Israel has been around since 1948. Uh, I personally believe in Israel's right – or Jews' right to self-determination – um and you know, I, I think that um uh the the state of Israel is a is a reality. Um I won't get into this, but I just don't believe that our right to self determination should come on the back of another people's right to self-determination. But uh Israel is a state and, and is a state with recognized borders, you know, from the international community. In nineteen sixty seven, with the with the occupation, you basically uh we start seeing this process where Israel you know, between the river and the sea, it's one state controlling all this territory, um, and this uh, this one state with, that controls all this territory is, in effect, maintaining two separate regimes, right? A, a democracy or a flawed democracy in Israel proper, right? But the, but there's still that potential for democracy, right? I'm talking from you from within Israel proper, in the center of Israel. Um, you know, and another regime, which is a military controlled area, a military dictatorship. These two regimes have been living side by side for many years. And this has been the case not only now, but, but for many, many years, two, these two separate regimes. What we see happening over the past decade and definitely in the past couple of years, and, you know, Trump here has helped amazingly to push this process forward, Uh, They couldn't have done this without the support of Trump and the Trump sham and the deal, you know, the slap of the century and, you know, whatever you want to call these, you know, these different names for this plan. Um, uh, Basically, a movement, which has always been in the fringe of the Israeli society, has now gained much more power and much more political power. And we're basically moving from this reality of one state with two regimes to a one state with one regime, right? So, so uh, many would argue that elements in the occupied territory itself resemble apartheid, right? segregation, bantustans, and so on and so forth. Um, and I think that's something to be dealt with, um, and definitely an argument that should be dealt with and put on the table. But the process that we're talking about, um, if we're going to be moving forward with annexation of the territories, and this is what the Trump plan is, will allow. This is what the Israeli current government, and we'll see what will be our next government, but even Netanyahu's political opposition, at least on the face of things, has legitimized annexation. We're basically talking about um, um, erasing this distinction between the two separate regimes and just going full-scale apartheid. And this is a very, very dramatic uh, shift where we see this legitimacy for annexation almost across the political spectrum. Um, and this is why this last election that just ended very recently was very, very important and it was actually unconclusive. But on the issue of annexation, there is a majority, or at least on the face of it, a majority of legitimacy to do that. Um, and as as an Israeli who believes in the importance of separating Israel, you know, the legitimate Israel with defined borders, right, what I would maybe call kosher Israel to non-kosher Israel, like right, The legitimate state versus uh, non-legitimate reality, uh, this process as we're moving towards, not only the legitimacy of the settlement, but the legitimacy of permanent control over Palestinians in confined areas, um, and annexation without giving Palestinians the right to vote. Um, and I think that this is really, um, and I say this, you know, with a lot of caution, but this is basically, um, uh, you know, moving us into a regime that, uh you know that we thought that ended with the, the, the end of apartheid in South Africa, um, and there was a rally against this 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 plan. There was a rally against this in Tel Aviv, where you know you know thousands of Israelis went to the street protesting it. And we 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 put together a sign um, which we walked around with this par- with in this parade and um, in this in this march. And the sign said. Um, um, don't make apartheid great again. Uh, and I think that basically the involvement of the U.S. in the, in the, in the dreams of the far right, right, this, this dangerous alliance between, you know, the messianic right and Israel believing in the greater state of Israel and the permanent control to the evangelical base of Trump um, has brought us to a very, very dangerous spot.
2: Um, since you mentioned uh, breaking the silence, I was wondering if you would share a bit about um, the organization's mission and uh, the ways that it accomplishes it.
1: Yeah. Um, so breaking the silence is a, you know, is a group of uh, uh, former Israeli vets. Uh, we all served in the occupied territories, and when we, refer, when we refer to the occupied territories, it's the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Uh, even though the Strip is controlled in a different way than the West Bank, it's still under Israeli control, uh, in our view. Um, and uh, we've been around since uh, the beginning of the Second Intifada. Uh, intifada is uh, a Palestinian word for uprise, we're shaking off first one 87, uh, Second one 2000. Second, second Intifada was a very very violent clash between Israelis and Palestinians. Uh, thousands of Palestinians killed in these clashes, thousands of Israelis. Um, and this is really a defining moment for for many many Israelis and a very important moment in the region. Um, and the guys who started breaking the silence served during the peak of the Second Intifada. In one of the most craziest spots in the Middle East, the city of Hebron. Uh, Hebron, or in Arabic, Khalil, uh, is a massive Palestinian city. Two hundred and twenty thousand Palestinians living there today, Um, and it's the only Palestinian city today that, in the heart of it, is an Israeli, a a bunch of Israeli settlements. Um, So you basically have about eight hundred Israeli citizens living. Right in the belly button of the city. Uh, and the guys who started Breaking the Silence served there uh, uh, during the peak of the Second Intifada. So, in the craziest city, in the craziest moment. Um, and in the specific area that they were serving in a part of the city called H2, which is under direct extreme Israeli control, you basically have about 30,000 Palestinians living in this one specific area. Um, And amongst them are these, um, back then, four or five Israeli settlements. Now there's almost seven or eight Israeli settlements uh, scattered in different areas. And what the soldiers were basically uh, ordered to do was uh, uh, um, uh, instill into the Palestinians uh, the sense that they're being chased right this is sort of a literal translation of order soldiers got or to um um disrupt the day-to-day life of the palestinian population in order to protect the israeli settlers um and there were during their time there there were um um, about 22 israelis killed soldiers civilians including a 10-month-old baby there were about 90 palestinians killed including a a uh, 14 year old Palestinian girl who was stabbed by an Israeli settler. So, we're talking about the crazy moment that at the end of their service, you know, many of them sort of collectively felt we have to do something with our experiences. And this is sort of the process of silence breaking that they refer to. Um, and in February 2004, uh, a, a group of these soldiers um, put together a photo exhibit taking pictures that they took in Hebron and combining them with their own personal testimonies. And they, uh, uh, together with the guy who's the head of our board, a guy named Miki Kaatman, who's one of Israel's, um, um, I would say, um, a most renowned uh, photojournalists. Um, uh, they basically put together this photo exhibit, um, which was uh, a defining moment of uh, of breaking the silence. Um, and thousands and thousands of Israelis came to hear these soldiers. Um, and because this was in the right moment, towards the end of the Second Intifada, it, it, it sort of allowed this openness. It allowed uh, Israelis... To, to listen uh, and 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 from this moment, sort of breaking the silence, uh, um, continued on with 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 our mission, uh, which was which is which was and still is very simple. To do whatever we can in order to end Israeli occupation. So we're not trying to make the occupation better. We're not only you know we're not an archive organization. We want to end military control over. Palestinian population. And we do this with basically, you know, one, one uh, method which is very simple and straightforward. We gather soldiers' testimonies and publish them in different ways. And the second thing we do is, on the base of, that te- of our testimonies and experiences, we do educational work. And we're actually the busiest anti-occupation movement organization in Israel, uh, meeting uh, thousands of people every year um you know from schools to campuses to home events tours that open to the public uh lectures talks um and that's basically that's basically what what's breaking the silence uh is today so we're a platform for soldiers that can come forward and break their silence about their service in order to end military control over Palestine I'll just I'll just I'll, I'll just add to that that you know since we've since we we started in 2004, we've met over 1,300 uh, soldiers. So different units, different places, different times. Men, women, mostly combat, but also soldiers serving in different positions in the territories. Uh, anyone serving um, um, and would like to speak up, you know where the place to go.
2: How does Breaking the Silence uh, vet the testimonies that it receives?
1: So that's a great question, which we take extremely seriously. I mean, we have a research department. uh, The people running the research department are former soldiers themselves and are uh, people who have given us testimonies. So um, each and every testifier that comes to speak with us um, uh, meets us, right? So you can't just, uh, you know, leave a bo- voice message or write a text or we meet each and every testifier. Um, and, you know, that's a very important vetting process, just, you know, seeing that the guy, you know, knows what he's talking about, uh, you know, doesn't invent stuff or, you know, times units. And our uh, people, our interviewers, you know, know their stuff, so it's very difficult to bullshit them. Uh, but after we uh, interview uh, the test, you know, the soldier, the former soldier, uh, we also go, th- we, we have an internal vetting process where each uh, incident, right, so every testifier has many different testimonies. So every testimony, uh, in order for it to be published, uh, needs to go through a pretty meticulous, um a process of vetting um i won't go into all the details, but uh um, generally speaking, we need other sources uh to confirm that this event happened it happened like he mentioned um and that the details are right um if there will be a um a, a gap between you know that information and another information, either we go in you know, find out what's, what's the truth or that we won't publish the testimony. And there are many, many testimonies, you know, sitting on sort of uh, the the bottom of the editing room in that sense um, um, that haven't been uh, published.
0: One of the things that I imagine and I've read faces, you guys, is attacks, uh, hate mail, um, attacks even from fellow soldiers, probably some former friends. Um, Henry, Kagan, and I deal with that to some extent. I do more and more as i become more of like a public uh, writer and speaker, and it's rough. And I've always said that the the legal stuff, you know, when the military comes after you or the government comes after you, the official hate, right, the official attacks are actually less nefarious and, and less disciplining than the pariah status and the social ostracization. Um, and, and so I want to make one comment and then ask you a question, which is, you know, I, one of the things that gets thrown around a lot to especially military dissenters in the United States is this term un-American or anti-American, right? You're, you're anti-American if you air your dirty laundry like you guys do internationally and domestically. In America, it's the same thing. And I was listening to Noam Chomsky, because I'm a hardcore lefty, uh, the other day in a documentary. And and he said something really interesting to me. And I want to know uh, your comment on this and then also just your experience with uh, receiving hate. Uh, And what Chomsky said was that the term anti-American or anti-insert country um, is unique historically to more totalitarian and even fascist societies. And he brings up the point that today, you know, in, in the West, as we know it, you would be laughed out of Italy if you referred to your political opponent, even your vehement political opponent, as anti-Italian, you know, that that language doesn't really exist. Uh, you'd, be, you'd be laughed away. Even if you hate Berlusconi, you know, for example, you wouldn't call him anti-Italian. And he, even though he was this, like, bombastic, you know, demagogue, wouldn't have really referred to his opponents as anti-Italian. And Chomsky also points out that in today's Germany, for example, to refer to someone as anti-German because they disagree with you politically on foreign affairs or domestic affairs would actually be considered dangerous given their nationalistic past. So and what's been your experience with you know, ostracization and hate, and, and of course your peers as well, and to what extent is the title anti-Israeli or something similar thrown at you guys?
1: Um yeah, all, all the time. Um, so you know, de- definitely um not 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 per se the term anti Israeli, but uh um you know if you um you have a chance to just, you know, Google my name in the New York Times, a video will pop up uh by um an organization which basically a right wing organization that supports Netanyahu, a group called Im Tirtzu, basically um, calling me and leaders of three other anti-occupation human rights organizations um, planted, right? Sort of blaming us to be Trojan horses of, uh, you know, the West of European governments, right? We're not real Israelis. Where, uh, and, and the video starts with uh, a Palestinian, which is seen as a Palestinian uh, terrorist coming to stab an Israeli. And sort of the video continues where where a voiceover saying, you know, before the next uh, uh, terrorist will attack you, then Avner Groyahu right? Yours truly will defend him and protect him, blah, blah, blah. So basically, you know, delegitimizing us, not only our views, but us personally. Uh, and I think uh, specifically this group that that aired this video, this group called Inter2, um, uh, it's actually a, a, a little bit of a funny funny story, but a few years back, a few sort of bloggers and activists Started a Facebook group, call, calling this group uh, fascist, and in Tier too, this group sued them, and they lost. So an Israeli actually accepted the fact that they could be they could be seen as having fascist elements. This was actually a court case, laid later on overruled in the Supreme Court, but but uh, still a very important claim. Um, if I remember correctly, uh, but still a very important claim um, you know, in an Israeli court to say, well, it's actually totally legitimate to do that. Um, or to to, to see them in, in those in those colors. I I think there's been a deep um, process of delegitimization for anyone, uh any dissenter. Um I I think that it's also uh Um, nothing that can surprise us because, you know, when you have, uh, alongside your flawed democracy and military dictatorship for 50 years, and the process is now moving into changing this reality to, you know, to annex it from from occupation to annexation, you have to destroy the liberal elements in your society right you have to attack the su- the supreme courts and rule of law you have to attack and delegitimize the press you have to attack and delegitimize civil society organizations right uh, uh it, 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 it 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 even makes perfect sense so yeah we've been under heavy attack um um as an organization um as a community um um you know just a few of the highlights starting the end of 2017 sort of a government uh ngo what i would call gongos government ngos uh or non-governmental organizations that are basically echo chambers for government policy um launched this vicious campaign that i mentioned um there are this is backed by the government there are attempts to d- different various legislations that will uh, make us make it difficult for us to fundraise, um, uh, prevent us from appearing uh, in high schools. Um, um, there was even a bill uh, that just basically called to close us all together. It didn't; they didn't all pass. But similar to other places around the world, like in Hungary or Poland, you have these sort of uh, bills that their job is only to delegitimize. They don't even have to pass. Um, but this also translated into attacks in the media, right? So the, the right attacks the media, but also creates its own media outlets that will attack, uh, you know, liberal values, ideas, and institutions. But this also translates into, uh, obviously, online attacks, uh, cyber attacks, and physical attacks um, you know our members were attacked physically in college campuses um, one of our um, uh, one my former co-director and one of the founders of the organization was, uh, was uh, attacked and during a tour uh, in Hebron um, um, and there was also someone who was caught with many liters of gasoline the names of all of my workers and his plan was, from what we understand, was to come and burn our offices. Um, so yeah, I mean, this uh, incitement uh, trickles down, um, and 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 I think that it's. I would say you know, besides the the um, you know the the extreme um, effect this had, I think on Israel's ability to have to have a conversation and. and and the extreme actions the government is taking, I think the most interesting thing to see was the spineless leaders on the center-right, center-left, that basically in some cases supported these actions, and in other cases um, were silent. Um, And I think this allowed, the lack of political opposition is a lot of what allowed this. just to sort of put all of this in in, in sort of, um, um, sort of putting it all in the right context, I think this is nothing compared to what, you know, Palestinians are going through under occupation. I think this is nothing compared to what, you know, our friends and activists are going through, uh, you know, uh, battling, um, um, you know, we're basically fighting for, for their most basic rights. But I think the process that we're seeing is, that it's not enough anymore to oppress Palestinians, uh, and and the interesting process that we're seeing now that in order to maintain or move forward with this process, you also have to oppress um, uh, Israeli Jewish dissenters uh, because we're privileged because we still you know, many of us are men many of us you know we all served and we still have sort of this privilege of protection. But we see how um, um, the state is actively – the state, not right-wing activists, right? The state is actively delegitimizing us uh, and and, and shrinking the space that we can operate in. Um, And I think it will be very interesting to see um, what government will be formed and if this process will be continued.
2: I had a a question from going through your guys' FAQ on the, the website. Uh, Awesome website, by the way, Um, it says in there that the breaking the silence as an organization supports ending the occupation, but not demanding systemic changes within Israel's government. And I was hoping that you might uh, discuss that a little.
1: Could, could you repeat that? What What? 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 Uh, what were you referring to exactly?
2: Sorry. Um, it was a, a question on the FAQ that talked about that while breaking the silence as an organization supports ending the occupation, it's not specifically pointed at the government of Israel or the IDF in terms of making systemic changes so that one occupation doesn't turn into another. Um. Can you, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Um,
1: yeah, I, I'm, uh, I'm just pu- pulling up the, that, that question. I, I think what you're referring to, let me know if, if this is uh, what, what you mean, um, where, where we basically write that well, our main criticism is to the military occupation, but not necessarily Criticizing the legitimacy of the existence of the state of Israel. Is that what you're referring to?
2: Um
1: do you, you want to read it?
2: Did you have it? Do you have it in front of you? Um, I've I've got it right here. Let me see if I can find the right one. Um I guess I, I, I had interpreted that to mean, you know, I, I understand about trying to ward off um unnecessary criticism just to just to push it down and in terms of that you know you're an Israeli you certainly wouldn't criticize the existence of the nation of Israel but that how does breaking the silence work to fight the larger systemic militarism that is a part of Israel I guess yeah
1: no that, that's a good question I mean look where we're, we're... Uh, um, our, our mission, where we see, you know, what what our job is, um, it's, it's, as I said, to be a platform for soldiers to speak out against the occupation from their perspective. So when we talk about the occupation, we talk about, you know, the territories Israel occupied post-1967. Israel also has soldiers on the northern border. Israel fought wars in southern Lebanon, a few, even a few uh, wars. Uh, one of them was during my time serving. Uh, many of our testifiers served during that time. There were things there that we could theoretically be talking about, but that's not our mandate. That's not our mission. Uh, our mission is to talk about the occupation. So um, um, it's not that there we don't have issues or questions generally with the effect of militarism in the society, because obviously. That also produces the next generation of Israeli citizens supporting the next um, operation, and so on and so forth. But uh, our problem is not with the military per se, right? We're not uh, um, uh, we're not necessarily anti-militaristic. Some of our members are, but some of our members are not, right? Um, but what, 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 where we feel that our uh, our energy should be going is to talk about the occupation, and in that sense, in that sense, we will make the, we will make a distinction between uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the Israeli occupation. Right, the Israeli occupation is one element within the conflict and i believe the conflict has to be resolved um um, by both people acknowledging each other and uh, talking about our past our present our future when it comes to the occupation even though i hope it will be solved with negotiation the responsibility is on us because we're the ones maintaining it um so so that's where I would sort of draw one. Uh, you know, that's where we're putting the spotlight on the occupation. Um, there's a lot of, you know, there's history that 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 could be discussed that we're not bringing up, and we're even uh, I can't I wouldn't say ignoring, but I don't think that's our mandate, right? You know, pre 48. Um, but also issues of militarism. Um, I think in our mind. Um, um are uh, um, first and foremost a uh, outcome of the occupation and in order to to move into a society that is generally more just and less militarized, the first thing we have to do is 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 end military control so you know we're putting that's where we're putting our eggs in that basket
0: that makes sense. So I have, uh, I think just one more question cause we, we don't want to keep you forever, even though, um, left to my own devices, if you're listening to the podcast, this will just continue to go on forever because <laughs> I am just loaded with questions. And I find it fascinating, not just to blow smoke up your ass, but because I don't know, I see a connection between breaking the silence and this nascent, um, and still weak to be fair, although growing movement of veteran descent in the United States. And um, one of the things we don't have that, that you do is we don't have a draft, right? The military conscription is gone uh, since the end of the Vietnam War. That was done purposefully, partly by Nixon and other folks in order to minimize descent. Um, and yet, yeah, I, I think what's interesting about Israel and what's often brought up to me, because uh, Henry and I, we don't 100% agree on with the draft, but we we do regularly bring up the idea that you know in our desperation to end these wars, America's wars, we, we can't help but think, man, if we brought the draft back and mothers had to worry about their sons and daughters going into the military and college students had to worry about what happens when they graduate, that perhaps there would be a stronger anti movement, anti war movement. Now, of course, some people bring up as an opposition to me, and it's a fair one that well, look at Israel, you know, Israel has, um, you know, Israel has a draft, and yet they maintain a very strong pro occupation position or or many israelis do but so we can talk about that in a second but also one thing that jumps out at me and this is really my final point is that you brought up how one of the reasons breaking the silence goes overseas right that you guys are willing to you know air your dirty laundry as the pejorative state is because you don't see the occupation as a solely israeli uh, function And you brought up Sheldon Adelson, of course, which is wildly important, and the influence of APAC and the lobbyists of the United States and supporters of the United States. But, but I see a deeper uh, historical connection, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this, a deeper historical connection between the United States and Israel that continues to this day that I would argue enables Israel uh, perhaps— incredibly importantly, perhaps vitally enables Israel's ability to flout international law, maintain the occupation. And one of the things I've talked about, about the United States military is that we have over the last 50 years since the end of the draft, we have Prussianized, which is just another way to say professionalized. We've like separated our military from our society and I would, and that's in our internal politics, our internal culture, but we've also is realized, I've said, and I get myself in a lot of trouble when I say this, meaning that we've accepted long-term overseas occupation as our mandate, as our norm. And in the process, I've argued that the American military has, you know, gained some of the characteristics of the IDF and the influence that you talked about earlier that I asked about of what it's done to the Israeli military. But I think this does dig back to something a bit deeper, which is that there is something unique about the American and the Israeli experience, and it, and this is an awkward truth. Both are at root settler colonial societies, and we're not alone. Right, um, many Western, what well, many English speaking, mostly English speaking, former colonies of Great Britain uh, have taken on this historical sort of tenor. Uh, Australia, New Zealand, and Canada are all. Uh, settler colonial societies now they have done a bit of a better job uh, with uh, reparations and apologies of kind of leaving that past behind not perfect but better but israel and the united states also have this settler colonial sort of mandate and in that sense they have a bit too much in common inconveniently with say south africa and, of course, that connection is made all the time by uh, – I'm pronouncing his na- name wrong, but Ilan Pape is – I'm not sure. How do you pronounce that author's name? Yeah. The uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that Okay. So he writes a lot about South Africa and apartheid and a million other things. He's great. I love him. But, um, you know, South Africa falls apart internally and falls apart externally partly because of the Cubans. Uh, thank you, Fidel. But it only maintains its power in the face of massive international illegitimacy sanctions and attacks because of the united states willingness to support it as an anti-communist regime and to some extent israel's support uh clandestine otherwise of south africa so this is all to say that you know in a broad sense what connections and you've mentioned it a little earlier do you see between the nature of the american and the israeli state and therefore the ability for the occupation to continue, which I would argue is a pretty nefarious nexus between the two countries.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I I, I think that, um, I think that we we should always uh, learn what we can from historical comparisons. I don't think that Israel is a classic, Settler colonial enterprise, um, and I think that uh, that's important to, to. I think that distinction is important for for many reasons. One, because I think it's true, uh, but but moreover, uh, because it uh, it eludes it could allow you to belittle the 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 problem that we're in. Because um, um, it's true that Israel had support from Western governments in different times throughout, you know, from the Zionist movement and so on and so forth. But uh, we cannot forget, and I don't think it will be helpful to forget, obviously, and I I don't think uh, by saying what you said, you you are, but uh, it's important for me to put on the table there is a historical uh connection that jews had to this specific land and because of that historical connection um you had different groups connected to this place throughout the years you know i am a ninth generation israeli from my dad's side right my mom as i mentioned grew up in upstate new york and you know, a daughter of a Holocaust survivor, and so on. But my dad is actually an eighth-generation Jerusalemite. I'm a ninth-generation generation Israeli. Now, in the same manner, I have Palestinian friends who are Jerusalemites, which could be seventh, eighth, tenth, eleventh generation as well. There, there is a dispute um, over connection to the land. I don't think there is a, a dispute about the involvement of Western powers um um to this side or the other um even though there were also you know uh, various attempts on on both uh Jewish Zionists or um, and Palestinian Arab side to gain um support for their cause from um external powers some in both cases actually attempts to gain power from Western powers but I think it's very clear that the Zionist movement from the get-go had a backing from the strongest power at the time, namely uh, the UK. Um, But but I think that um, um, even though there is definitely comparisons to be learned, uh, I don't think that we're talking about sort of a classic uh, comparison. Um, and I think that um, uh, specifically, sort of, you know, going sort of going back to the distinction I made between the conflict, which I think has two sides, and therefore is less of a classic sort of settler colonial enterprise, the Israeli occupation is a much more of a classic colonial enterprise. Uh, much more of an algier style reality um and and I think that that is again not not one to one but uh uh much more similar elements and I think that that is um, you know, where different military occupations um resemble each other now is Israel sort of a model for the u s uh i'll be I'll be blunt i don't think so I think that there is, that that we're all learning from each other. And I think that in the same way that uh, silence is not uh, uh, only, in, you know, we don't only have silence in the Israeli military, where there's many different silences in the Israeli society. But silence is not only an Israeli epidemic. You know, every society has its silences. I think that's where in a moment, uh, and this could definitely be seen you know, maybe, you know, post, uh, um, um, you know, September 11, and and, and so on and so forth. But uh, um, uh, I I think there's uh, um, drastic changes in world orders. Um, And Israel, like other countries, um, has taken a sort of nationalist, chauvinistic nationalistic approach uh and you see other countries playing uh, the same way Uh, you know again um you know we i mentioned hungary but you know bolsonaro in the in brazil the territory in the philippines uh i think there's more of a dramatic shift uh happening uh and you know many have talked about this but sort of a collapse of the post-world war ii order and I have to say, it's sad in my view that, you know, we're a part of these uh, states or communities, cultures, that is sort of uh, helping in this process. But I think that there is, there is a more dramatic movement. And I think for vets, for soldiers, that if you look at, um, you know, peace conventions and world conventions and, you know, the... Um, the, you know, the the writing of um, of uh of of binding documents many of them have come from soldiers coming back from the battlefield and saying we don't want to kill and don't want to be killed and i think that it's it's uh it's uh it's and on the one hand uh sad that this is where we are and i think this is a global phenomenon not only american and israeli but on the other hand i think it, it it puts us in a position to uh to shout out and say you know we have the the responsibility on our shoulders of the generations of soldiers who were killed in vain and killed in vain and we have to make sure that i don't know if it's holding up sort of a uh the classic liberal ideas or revising them and thinking about something else but i think that there is there th- there is a battle taking place on the most basic concepts and ideas that have uh, have guided us um and uh i think it's uh, it's bigger than uh one one or two leaders i i think that this is a this is a new a new phenomenon. I don't know. I don't know how the coronavirus fits into all this, but that's that's maybe a that's maybe a different conversation. But uh, I, I think that we are in in a moment where uh, the, you know this the, the 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 rise of illiberal democracies uh, isn't isn't uh, true anymore. They have risen, um, and many illiberal democracies are today. Um, are today sort of um, um, giving sort of the marching orders.
0: Yeah, I mean th- those are are great points, and, and you know, I I think that you um, don't think this, but it to clarify, you know, my description, uh, and I think that you're right to recognize that there are significant differences. Um, so it is dangerous sometimes when we um, when we draw the connections that I did. Um, so while I think there are connections, I, I think that there, we do have to differentiate, as you mentioned, between Israel and the Israeli occupation, which are, in some ways are two different regimes. But, you know, I mean, I feel like I always have to say this whenever I'm uh, critiquing Israel, especially the United States and the liberal community is, you know, like there's there's no part of me that denies the connection of uh, Jews to the region, or the standing reality, of course, that Israel exists, right? And, and Israel, like any other sovereign nation or people, deserves to have security. And, uh, you know, one of the arguments that I make, and I think that you, from everything I hear, probably agree with, is that ultimately, um, you know, Israel is safer, and just like I think America is safer, uh, if it eliminates the occupation, right? If it comes to some sort of peaceful settlement with the Palestinian state. I mean, I I would argue, and I I think you agree, although I'm interested in your thoughts, and I know they said that would be my last question, but this really is, you know, that ultimately the occupation has been counterproductive um, to civil liberties at home, to uh, just the the political discourse and to the safety and security of Israel, because it creates a cycle of forever war. And I think that that's been the case with America and what it calls, quote, terrorism worldwide. Um, so yeah, so I, I think that um, it, is, it is important that we not delegitimize Israel uh, in the process of our critiques, and I never intend to do that. However, I think that it must be recognized, and so few people seem to either here or in Israel, that ultimately uh, occupations and empire, whether they be Israeli or American, are counterproductive and actually make us less safe.
1: No, no, I, to- I totally agree there. Uh, that- there I'm not, I think that, you know, we're, um, I-, I think you're totally right. Uh, I think the... For the definitely for the better of the region and for Palestinians, but also for the better of, the, of Israelis and Jews generally. You know, I think that um, um, maintaining military control over another people is is very bad um, on any different level. So yeah, I totally agree there.
2: Well, fellas, I think that's uh, a good place for us to close today. Um, Avner, thank you so much for uh, coming and chatting with Danny and myself, I uh, really enjoyed it
1: Thank you so much guys, this was great um, and thanks for the questions and the interest and it uh, would uh, be great to get it once it's aired um, and if you guys come to the region let us know we'd be very happy to take you guys around and sort of keep, uh, keep at it, keep talking about this.
0: That would be great Yeah, I may hold you to that. I've been uh, wanting to uh, come to uh, Israel and to the territories for a long time. But, uh, yeah, thanks again. And just, you know, personally, one-on-one, I'm sure you hear this a lot, but thanks for what you do and for being part of what I think is a uh, transnational brotherhood of um, dissenting veterans. And so it's really great the work you guys are all doing.
1: Thank you. Amen. That sounds great. We'll be in touch.
2: All right. Take care, Evner. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill and also at Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify, you name it. Almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey... We're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. And if you're not into giving us a monthly payment, think about giving us a couple bucks on PayPal. The link is in the show notes. Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget it. We'll see you next time. You good people And listen to my song I will know.